Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test I want to introduce our uh, guests for today to the stage. The first is Dr. Gina A.S. Robinson. Um, Please give her a big City Point sign of welcome as she comes. The second is the Reverend Stephen J. Thurston II. Give him a hand as he comes. Awesome. I'm going to read some bios real quick so y'all know who they are, and then we'll jump right into discussion. Um, just want to be mindful of, of time, and I want to make sure that we have plenty for discussion. All right, so we'll, we'll start with Dr. Gina A.S. Robinson. I'm going to read my abridged version because um, uh, Gina is very accomplished. Um, Gina grew up on her great-grandfather's farm in rural Georgia, where hard work and education served as the primary vehicles to multi-generational success. She earned a Bachelor of Arts in both political science and African-American studies from Emory College, followed by a Master of Divinity from Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Gina spent a year at Yale Divinity School researching the varying implications of colorism on the identity development of black girls. Uh, Gina earned a Ph.D. from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Won't you give it up for Dr. Gina A.S. Robinson? For the past two decades, Reverend Stephen J. Thurston II has empowered and equipped individuals to reach their full potential by leading them to change what's within in order to change what's around. A native of Chicago, Illinois, Stephen gained his intellectual prowess at some of the most respected academic institutions in the world, including Oxford University, Northwestern University, Mercer University, and Morehouse College. Stephen's ability to translate practical principles to divergent demographics has enabled him to speak to audiences across the globe, leaving them challenged, changed, and charged. Won't you give it up for Reverend Stephen J. Thurston II. So today, so, so the way this, um, this thing is formatted is we're looking at a different track or a set of tracks every week. Um, this is the only week that we'll be in person. Um, the rest of the month will be online, but still hoping to have the same kind of dialogical format happening. Um, but each week we'll look at a different track. This week we are starting with A Girl Like Me. Um, and centering our discussion there. Before we go into it, um, there is uh, just a a passage of scripture that I want to share that just was on my heart this morning when I woke up, and um, it is Psalm 139 and 14. It says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Uh, That scripture was on my heart because I'm thinking about, as we engage in this conversation, about these matters of rejection, these matters of heartbreak, um, that 
many of us have faced and experienced. And those experiences can tend to, let's just be honest about it, impact our self-esteem and our view of ourselves. And for some of us, it is years later, a whole nother relationship later, perhaps even marriage later, and we're still trying to compensate for the rejection that we received in a past relationship. And I think that the only way that we can sort of clap back at that is to clap back at it with the truth of what God says about us. Uh, sometimes ugly words were said about us that were not true. Uh, sometimes very uh, weaponized words were said to us um, that were sent to hurt. And we embraced them because that person we had embraced. And because of the value that we placed in them, we valued their words as truth. And we still carry those words with us. It's been months, it's been years, for some it's been decades since then, and we still carry those hurtful words. And so that passage of scripture just came to my mind this morning to share with us regarding the truth of who we are, who God created us, and how beautiful God created us. Last thing, I'm going to make an observation. I am looking at a room full of gorgeous people. And I don't know if when you look in the mirror, you see what I see, but I'm looking at some handsome brothers, some gorgeous sisters, and perhaps you struggle saying that to yourself when you see yourself in the mirror, but that is the truth of who you are. Let's jump into it. So first question that I want to raise for us is just as it relates to that track, A Girl Like Me. Think back two years ago when you heard that album for the first time. What about that song hit for you and why? We'll start, we'll start with you, Gina. There we go. Good morning, everyone. When I heard that song two years ago, um, I said, wow, I think she's been peeping into my life. Um, I think she may have heard some conversations I had with my homegirls and maybe even some conversations I had with myself and with God. Um, I definitely could relate, uh, especially like reflecting back on my 20s when I was living in Atlanta and I was trying to figure out what dating meant for me in a place like Atlanta. Um, and I was also just trying to date as a quote unquote church girl, right? A good girl. The girl that in my mind ought to be chosen if I do particular things such as, you know, serve the Lord with all my heart, um, show up to church every Sunday, volunteer, all that good stuff, right? That ought to make me stand out and make me the one who is chosen. But reality is, I really wasn't getting chosen like that. Um, and it was because I was dating in a way that was aspiring to um, achieve what I thought was what God had um, sort of created relationships to be like and look like, especially as it was told to me through sermons, whether it be at a women's conference or a singles conference or whoever's conference. Y'all know we love a conference. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to all the conferences, etc. And then we also have like these scripts um, that were placed before me that I was trying to live into without asking God what is the script for my life. So it took me, you know, a while to realize 
maybe I need to do something different if I want to have different results in my life. So I'll stop there for now. Yes, yeah, so I've done a lot of stuff in the space of relationships, but the whole podcast situation, wrote a book about it, all of that type of thing. And so it said to me a couple of things when I heard the song. Number one, she's given voice to a whole lot of ladies. As I live between Atlanta and Chicago, constantly being, question being raised by women, where are the guys at? And I'm like, if you live in Atlanta, they ain't there. <laughs> As a black single woman, you ma'am, move. <laughs> or expand the parameters of who you're gonna to decide to date because they ain't here, the numbers are not in your favor. And they're beyond Atlanta, the numbers are not in the favor of black single women looking for a black single straight man. And so it shows us where the power lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The patriarchy stuff kind of kicks in there as well. And it helped me to recognize and force a conversation with men to be honest that a lot of men don't like women. They like vagina, but they don't like women. Talk about it. And there's a big difference between the two. Yeah. And because we know that the, the odds are in our favor, we've got the power based upon numbers, we can play with women. And we can see the good girl and like the good girl and know in our heart we ought to get the good girl. But we'll play with everything else because when the good girl tells us no, we know we got options. Because no other woman has told us no. We grew up with mama, grandmama, aunt, a bunch of women that always told us yes because in the black context, we raise our daughters, but we mother our sons. And so I'm constantly telling boys, yes, when they become men or the age of manhood, if we hear no, we go to find somebody else who'll tell us yes. And you good girls will tell us no, and you'll set boundaries and parameters and structure and put commitment as a price tag before engaging at certain levels of intimacy. And so men like women, nah, they like vagina. They don't like women. Yeah. So, so just so y'all know, I invited them because I knew they would tell truth. Um, I'm, I'm from the ilk of um, shame the devil, tell the truth. And, and just the church needs to be a space where we can own what it is, name what it is, and then determine together, strategize together on ways that we can move forward. Um, so my hope is that we continue to push this kind of truth telling through the conversation. Also gonna open up space for Q&A as well. Um, so there's a couple things I heard. Um, Gina, you talked about messages um, that you received, scripts you received on how you should show up, right, as a, as a single woman through the church space. And I, th I think often about how women who I know who did all the things that church told them to do are the ones, and this is what I hear out of this song, are the ones that got left behind. I'm a millennial, I'm on the oldest and older end of millennial, I'm 41. We're now getting into very serious time, right? Like where it's not just some got married later, some had children later, it's some of the church girls that I grew up with just did not have children. It did not happen for them, and it did not happen for them, not because they didn't want to, but because of the script that they were given. Um, and I struggle a lot with, I struggle a lot with that. 
And, and, and Gina, that's something that you and I have dialogued about. So one, I would love for you to talk more about that script and then what was the pivot in your life? Um, and then how do you reflect on that script now? Thank you for that question. So I would say for me, it actually starts with scripts I received before church. And those scripts were fairy tales, whether they were in books or in Disney movies, um, right? There was a particular script. You had a prince, you had, if you were of the Shrek time, you had a Shrek, <laughs> right? Um, but there was always this young woman who was usually pretty, often thinner, right? There were so many things that made this particular woman desirable by this man who was the catch. Um, and those are at like the foundation for me. Now you add church scripts on top of that. You have scripts that can be found in the Bible and if you hold scripture as truth or hold scripture as your source and only source of truth, um, which for me growing up in the church that very much so was the case. Um, scripture told me as a young woman that I ought to work, right, in the vineyard of the Lord and wait for my Boaz to come. So if we reflect on the book of Ruth and how we have um, this young woman who is like trying to help out her mom, her, uh, not really her mom, but it was her husband's mom, and then that man, things happened with him. But anywho, she meets this dude named Boaz who's gonna come and save her and make life so much better, right? The story is often told as if a man has to save them and make their life good. But if we read it a different way, we can really see some beautiful story, a beautiful storyline about two women who found out how to make it work, right? These are women who actually had agency, who knew what they could do to get what they needed to survive, which kind of goes into some of these other songs that are on um, hotels as well, but I know we're not doing those this Sunday. So what shifted for me, what pivoted for me? I realized what I was doing, how I was dating, my relational goals were not working, right? I know what I want for my life. I want to be in relationship, I want marriage, I want children, and Again, I wasn't the one being chosen, and then there was like, I particularly remember a moment when I was serving in a church in Atlanta in the youth ministry, and there was this guy who I like had my eye on. I thought he maybe had his eye on me too. He could have, but I wasn't the only one. Um, and he showed up like the next Sunday with this woman who was going to our church who had recently had a baby, and it was not his. So I was like, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that here we have a woman who had an older daughter who now has this infant child. She can attract a man of God? Of course she can. Why couldn't she, right? She is worthy of love just as much as I was. But I had to realize like, you know, maybe some of the things that I'm expecting or looking for in these particular men who were in the church, right? The man who was in my brain, that was in the church, not the actual men who were there. Once I realized that I was looking for someone who actually wasn't in the flesh, I had to broaden my own mind and my own understanding of who I wanted to be with and who God 
may have actually designed for me, which likely is not the prince from the fairy tale. It is not Boaz, right? It's someone else. So what I had to do was expand my own mind. One way I did that was by accepting other sources as truth. Yes, scripture is absolutely a truth that we can lean into. And it is one that is very important to me. But what about the wisdom of our elders, right? What about the wisdom that God has already imparted within ourselves so that I can know what I want and not what other people have told me I wanted, I should want, right? Or what I should need. I let go of the shoulds and lean more so into what my heart's true desire was. So it took some time of like self-discovery. And again, just like adjusting my dating goals, the way in which I dated, my relational goals, um, I kind of leaned away from the I must be serious when I'm dating, right? The whole let me set the boundaries on the first date. I mean, there are some boundaries that need to be set, but not like a you have to do these things because we're going to get married. Like, no, uh-uh, let's go out and let's have fun. And then I'm going to date and date until I find a person I want to keep having fun with. And then we could think about some of those boundaries, right? So I had to do a complete mindset shift in order to create the space to have what my heart desired. I appreciate that. Um, one of the things that I have, and we've been generally on this kind of deconstructive journey as a church for a couple of years, um, to not no longer believe the Bible, that is not at all the journey that I've been trying to take us on, but to get us to think critically about what we believe about the Bible and how we use it. And so a part of what I have been doing, especially lately, is trying to parse apart the culture that is there from the commands that are there. And sometimes the two things get braided together and it is very difficult to extract them one from another, right? And so, and so I think a lot of what we have done is we have tried to map a 5,000-year-old culture on top of our culture and said, live this way. But we pick and choose in what ways we want to live that way, right? It's not, particularly it is the ways that relate to relationships um, or just to be honest, to women um, in particular. If we think about Old Testament structure with relationships, it is about protecting sexuality, but only the sexuality of women. When we look at the men in the Old Testament, they oftentimes had multiple partners, right? Abraham had his multiple partners. Isaac had his multiple partners, right? So much so that when scripture breaks down the lineage, like it's got to clarify these were his sons, but these three were by this woman and these two over here were by that woman, and they happened to be sisters, but he just married both of them. And so this, this idea of sexual fidelity is for women and not for men. The women have one partner. The women are supposed to have one partner. The men can have multiple partners. And when you start pulling it all apart, it starts to feel like the ways in which women are dealt with, especially in the Old Testament, is kind of similar to property rights, right? Right? So much so that like if a, if a, 
if a person um, rapes a woman, the penalty is not death, the penalty is not jail, the penalty is a fine that you have to pay her father, right? So much so that in, in the Old Testament, if, if a man marries a woman and she does not produce children, he gets to take her back to her father, right? And so what we see here is more similar to rules and commands that are similar to trading livestock than it is about relationships. What's problematic about that is that we grab that and we try to drop that in 2022 and say, look, ladies, this is how it's supposed to work for you in dating. This is how it's supposed to work for you in marriage. And I think we have to deconstruct that. I know it's scary to think that way about the Bible, but I, I think we, ha we, we have to push ourselves to deconstruct that. All right. Um, Thurston, I want to come to you to talk a bit about, I want you to unpack more related to how you, you said something about as men, we have been socialized or given permission to play, right? Can you unpack that a, a little bit more? Sure. We, we've been, as you just talked about the biblical text, we've been extending an extreme amount of grace um, because everything for us in our lives from a biblical perspective forward is often framed through patriarchy, giving men power, dehumanizing and devaluing women. And so that gives us the space and the place to play to set our own rules. Um, the hunter will always look great until the lion gets a chance to write the story. And when we look at the biblical text and we break down what the sacred scriptures are, these were letters written by Jewish men to other Jewish men or other Jewish communities about a particular issue or, or topic or subject or problem that was being faced. So when you have the pen of a man writing the rules and the regulations, guess who's going to come out on top? It's always going to be the man. And we continue to take the wasness of then and superimpose it upon the isness of now, not considering cultural context and the history of the text and what's happening in that time period and how it might need to shift for where we are now to make it applicable to our lives, to our existence, to create fairness among the sexes, between people, to see humanity as humanity and not just uh, tran transactional items to be played with from time to time. And so uh, just like it's the requirement of white people to talk to white people about white supremacy, it's the responsibility of men to talk to other men about the patriarchal problems that we continue to perpetuate within the lives of society and the unnecessary pressures that we put on women. And so we have to call each other out on the garbage that we keep pushing and the unfairness and the hypocrisy that we see take place in the church space, in the marketplace, in every place. That's good, that's good, that's good, amen. There is this theme of rejection that comes up in the song, right? And I think that that rejection piece is not limited to Christian women experiencing rejection. I think it's also the good guy Christian guy, like I have baggage of like the good guy. Like I was a early 20 something year old preacher, you know what I'm saying? Like 
there are just inherent, I mean, you were a young preacher as well, right? Just challenges that come along with being that, that good guy image and you experience rejection as it relates to that as well. Um, so one, I wanna name that. Um, I do wanna, just for sake of time, I wanna make sure we create space to get in questions and thoughts and comments that we can provide feedback to as well. Um, Tyrese, can you grab, uh, grab that fourth mic? And then if anybody's got question comments to throw in, um, Tyrese can bring the mic around. I want to shout out my homie, Reverend Andrea Clark Horton, uh, who is here uh, today. Thank, thank you, homie. <laughs> so, um, Reverend Thurston, you just talked about men having to have these conversations with other men, right? How do, when you're having these conversations with one another, there's got to be some consideration that there's some stuff that you have to unlearn, even as the one who is going to your brother and saying, you know you, know you ain't right doing this, but there's some things you have to unlearn, right? Um, and how do you talk to your, how do you do that for yourself? How do you encourage other men to do that? I was in a, in a relationship with somebody for a year and a half, wonderful man, had decided he was never going to get married again, and so we didn't mesh in that way. Sure. And he said he knew that was a problem because he gets to the point in relationships where he should be committed, and he can't do it. And I said, you need to go to therapy. And he said, I, I feel like I should be able to fix this on my own. I don't want to go to therapy. Well, brother, we're not going to. It's love him to this day. Sure. But doing that work on yourself, like how do you have those conversations before you get or, or in the midst of those conversations with your brothers about how they're treating women? Great question. Number one, there's a futurist by the name of Alvin Toffler. Alvin says that the most illiterate people of the 21st century are not those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and then relearn. And I trust that I'm not talking to any illiterate people in this place today, because we should all challenge ourselves to learn, unlearn, and then relearn. The most valuable tool in the toolbox as it relates to relationships is a mirror which challenges us to embrace the space and the place of introspection. Until you face it, you will not be able to fix it. And all of us got some stuff. And in these conversations that we have as men, that we create safe spaces as brothers to talk, we have to serve as blind spot indicators to each other. And to your point about therapy, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus and the therapist. A prescription too sometimes because some of us got some chemical imbalances that cause us to engage in the crazy stuff that we do and so being honest with yourself first puts you in a position to challenge other people to be honest about themselves when I can unpack my stuff in front of Pastor Davis and say hey man this is me this is where I struggle it creates a safer space for him to then share and be vulnerable and then for us to challenge one another and hold each other accountable and that's what men have to do and I'm seeing it happen more and more. Uh, I smoke cigars, so whenever I'm at the cigar bar, that normally creates a safe space where we can break down some stuff and just have some real honest conversations. So as long as y'all ain't around, we can talk. Because we're not gonna be vulnerable with y'all. 
because for the most part, y'all take it and y'all flip it back and use it against us. So that's something y'all have to continue to work on. All of us got stuff to work on. We got issues and y'all got issues too. So I'm trying to help some of the married folk when he's vulnerable with you or even if the dating people. If a guy is vulnerable with you, he likes you. Recognize that and don't abuse it. Hopefully I answered your question. That's, that's excellent. I want to raise a question about marriage since you raised marriage. Um, okay. Preface this by saying that I have heard from multiple married people, happily married people, that have been married for over a decade that have said if something were to happen to their spouse, they don't think that they would get married again. Um, I've heard it from multiple people. Multiple people have said that. I raise that point because I wonder how many of us that are unmarried wish to be married because we wish to be in a lifelong partnership with another person live in the same house, compromise on things, all those things, right? Like the partnership that comes with marriage versus wanting to be married because it is the socially acceptable uh, means by which we can be in a relationship, particularly for women. Um, and I, I just would love to just hear some feedback about that. Um, while I'm waiting for feedback, and anybody can jump in, I'm thinking about like what I know, because I've counseled a lot of couples that are married, like what I know this kind of English court system of marriage is that we have right now. It is an experience that is very easy to get into. Like literally, you just go to the courthouse, what is it, like 10 days ahead of time or two weeks, you file the stuff, you pay your fee, you get your like marriage um, uh, license or certificate or whatever. You do your ceremony. You could do your ceremony in my office. You could do it in the alley behind your building. And a preacher signs it, and you're good. It's very easy to get into, right? I just explained how simple it is. To get out of it, to get out of it, it is going to cost. And anybody that has gotten, has had to get out of one or is currently trying to get out of one, I don't know anything else in life that is more difficult to, to get out of. Like, if you got a car and you no longer can pay for it, you can turn it in. If you have a house that you can no longer pay for, you can easily work out something with the bank. But that marriage that you got into because you were in love at that particular season of time and things were working, if it stops working, it's hard and it is expensive to get out of. I understand people's hesitation about jumping into something that is very, that is so difficult. And, and, and let's be honest, there are reasons to need to get out. Let's be honest about that. Like all, all of the things are not just, you can just pray it away. Somebody upside your head, simply trying to pray that away is perhaps not the best or only strategy. I'm not saying you should not pray, 
But there are some relationships that are physically abusive, verbally abusive, toxic in other ways that we need to get out of, and marriage can be very tough. To presume that everybody wants to sign up for that, I think is arrogant for me as a married person. Um, and to presume that people have to sign up for that institution in order to experience all of the other valuable things that come along with being in a relationship, I struggle with as well. That's just me being my honest, transparent self and open to feedback, comments. Uh, Lana's got her hand up here. Uh, Tyrese has a mic. Okay, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I didn't know you had it. Go ahead, Miana. All right, I have a hard left, if you don't mind. Lana, is yours to that point? Okay. It's similar to mine. Can yeah, we go to Lana and then we'll me. come yeah, to yeah. Miana? Okay. I just wanted to read the room. All right, and then we're going to go five more minutes. I knew we were going to run out of time. Um, I'm not married, so let's just start there. But um, to what you're saying, I've been having a lot of clients and a lot of friends that discuss that this is so difficult to get in and be in and clients that are now telling me that because they don't really want to come in front of the church or their friends to say that they don't want to be married anymore because either they, it's difficult or they fell out of what they've been in for a very long time. 20, 15 year, I'm having clients buy separate homes right now, a lot of people buying two homes. They live, their friends and family probably don't know that they're going there all week and on the weekend they come back into this space. There could be people in this room we're sitting with we don't know is doing it. It's becoming very common and I'm hearing that the reasons are it's so difficult. They think they're gonna be judged by the church if they uh, get divorced or if they at their jobs or on these different committees that they're on that they need to be married to be in them, some of these committees. So I guess it, it, a person that's not married, it makes you kind of feel like, why? <laughs> Like, why go there? And then it's okay for people to not want to do it. It is hard to get out of. A lot of them are talking about financially getting out of. Um, so I guess it's just my thoughts on that to you guys. Thank you. Um, we're going to Miana. Um, I'll share this anecdote. I was talking to a, a, a partner who I, I had married this couple some years ago. Now they have kids. Marriage is horrible. It, it's it's horrible. It is it's 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 very very bad. And I know I know that she got married because she wanted to do things the right way, and and now it's so complicated because they've gotten married. They have these kids. If they hadn't had that message of like um, interpreting Paul that way of like. It's better to get married than to like burn with passion, right? That's what they were trying to do is like, we keep sleeping with each other, so we need to get married so it'll be right with God. And they were not compatible. They were not ready. And so now here they are, right? Because they were trying to not fornicate, they have this even messier situation with children involved. I, I just, we need, we need better ways. This, 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 that's not the way. That's not the way. And I, I will stand on that. That's, that's not the way. 
Um, thank you for that. I, before I go into the, to the hard left, I will say, as um, a single woman being on like the younger side of um, being a millennial, um, one thing that we have to thank, particularly black women, younger millennials and Gen Z, for older black women millennials is that I think many of us don't see marriage as an accomplishment anymore, and I don't see kids as an accomplishment anymore. Um, and I kind of am in a place where I'm seeing them as a phase of life. And one thing that I think personally I'm contending with is because I don't see them as an accomplishment, what is, what is the thing that's getting me to want to be there? And, and that's, yeah, that, that's something that I'm, that I'm working with. But the, the core question that I had, um, if I could read scripture right quick from um, Matthew 19, um, starting at verse 3, it says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, he being Jesus, of course. Um, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Um, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command um, one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And from there, um, I'm really wondering and this has been on my heart for a little bit, do you think that there are things that are allowable spiritually or within the body now that is allowable because of the hardness of our hearts and not because God intended it to be the design? Does that make sense? Okay, cool, thanks. You we're, both, we're both processing. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you asked a good question. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I could start singing if y'all, I mean, I can't sing, but <laughs> we could feel the So I, I could posit some things, um, and then you guys can feel free to jump in, and we'll, we'll let this be the last question for sake of time. So I'm going back to trying to unbraid culture, culture and command here. Um, I wonder, and I, I need to study that specific text in order to talk intelligently about it, but I do wonder if what's happening here is Jesus is talking more about like spousal abandonment by men versus whether or not, because we got to think about like implications of divorce in the time, right? Like this is, this is essentially like your new tribe, your new everything, it especially places you in a vulnerable place if you're a, um, if you're a woman that has gotten married. Um, the divorce places that person in a vulnerable position. So perhaps what's happening in this passage is Jesus is pushing back against men or husbands from practicing this kind of spousal abandonment type of thing because I'm tired of this woman or there's a new thing that I am attracted to. I would need to look more at the text to understand that. Um, I think you're on point. I did study that text. 
And that's really the angle I think that Jesus is pushing because men were just disposing of women at their leisure for whatever reason. So I think the challenge was y'all chill on all that. Like that's, that ain't represent me. So I think that was Jesus's approach. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll look at it this week. I'll shoot you a note. And if I might add, just to agree with uh, my brothers on the panel here, we also have to think about why Jesus came back. Jesus came back as a reformer. So often when Jesus was speaking, it was to speak or call out some of the injustice or some of the wrongdoing that was happening in the community. And Jesus was pro-community, right? All about beloved communities. So think about um, as these gentlemen have spoken on how just throwing away a wife who has already given up her identity, right, does not have any other wherewithal to take care of herself, but was completely and solely depending on that man, her husband, for him to just throw her away, it does more than vulnerability, right? It really threatens her ability to survive because she is separated from her family. She is essentially separated from herself. And Jesus wasn't about all that at all. And we see him deal with that, like with the widow of Nain, right? Like that's what that's, that's why that story has that depth. Like the widow of Nain who lost her only son, right? It's compounded devastation. Widow no longer has a husband to provide for the needs. Son takes up that responsibility, but son has now died. Jesus restoring that widow's son is a restoration of livelihood there, right? Because of the, the social dynamics. And I think that ties into the lyrics of the song. In, that, in the song that we focus on today, you have a woman who's now trying to adapt and adjust for now survival purposes. Yeah. You've made a hole out of me. I'm about to do all this stuff. I'm about to contort and twist now that I can survive. And so I think that that text speaks to our here and now, and again, challenging men, stop throwing away women, stop abusing women, stop misusing women, stop using them up and then casting them away. Yeah. That's good. Ruth is essentially about that kind of survival, right? Yeah. That contorting yeah. to survive. That's what Ruth does. That's what Naomi coaches her to do is like. Naomi was a madam. Yes. And Ruth dropped that wop on Boaz. So, and this is, this is controversial. But the, this is controversial, but when you study the text and Naomi coaches Ruth to go, can I just, can I just tell the truth? I Exegete the text, Trevor. Spent years learning scripture and I just need to keep it 100. Yes, sir. Ruth, this is Naomi. Naomi says to Ruth, wait until he's had his drinks and he's, he's in a good place. Put your good dress on. This is in the, I'm not ad-libbing. I'm not, this is in the scripture. It's in the text. Put this good dress on. She said, bathe. Smell good, put this good dress on. After he's drunk, after he's been drinking, I want you to go into his quarters. I want you to pull back the sheet, and I want you to lay at his feet. And lay at his this, feet this means something. In that lay at his feet means something different. Yes. Throughout the course of time, colloquialisms lose meaning. Right? We have sexual colloquialisms, right? 
right? When we talk about this part of the body, we're not talking about this part of the body, right? We mean something else in our culture when we say that word that starts with H, that you guys are picking up what I'm putting down. And so to, when she says to her, lie at his feet, and then he wakes up startled, and then he says to her, don't leave but stay the night, right? I don't want anybody to see you that you came into here. What very, very likely happened is Naomi, because let, let's, let's deal with this for a second. The stuff that happens throughout scripture is not all holy. Can we own that? Can we own that Rahab was a prostitute and Rahab, the prostitute, saved some people? Can we name that she's in Hebrews as a part of the Hall of Fame of Faith? Can we name that? Can we name that Abraham and Sarah's situation was effectively Sarah and Abraham co-conspiring to rape Hagar? Right? In scripture, it just says, she gave her her servant. Where I live, when somebody gives, takes a, some other woman and gives her to some man to have sex with them against her will, that's rape where I come from. Sex trafficking. Right? That's sex trafficking. So I want us to name that it's not, it's not all clean, it's not all neat. And in this situation, they are destitute, they are without anything and they are doing the best they can. And so whether or not the story of Ruth is providing us an image of what we should do, that's for another debate of another time. It is a historical book that says what happened. And in this situation, the way that Naomi and Ruth figured out how to make a way out of no way, which let's be honest, especially among black people, Black women have been figuring out how to make ways out of no way for a long time. In this situation, the way she made a way out of no way was by doing that. And that's what happened. And they survived because of it. And some of our families survived because of things like that. Mama had a little friend who would help put something on the rent and that kept you from being outdoors. Was it right? Was it good? It wasn't. But she did what she had to do in order to survive. And, and, and I think we need space within our faith to acknowledge the messiness of it all. It, it does not operate in a straight line. And, and if, if you are one that... Um, wants to pretend that your life and your faith and your journey has operated in a straight line. It's likely not true. It's messy, this Christian journey. Sisters that are trying to navigate this thing, brothers that are trying to navigate this thing, single, continuing to grow older, it's hard to find a partner. It's messy navigating this thing. If, if you are in a relationship and you slip up and you are intimate with somebody and you come to me, I'm going to say, sis, it's hard to navigate this thing, but let's pray together. And I'm going to say to you, just like Jesus said to the woman when they had picked up the stones, where are your accusers? 
neither do I accuse you. Because the journey is hard. I'm going to just stop right there. I'll wait for the emails and the inboxes and the phone calls and the text messages and the resignation of church membership. But I have resigned that I am going to keep it 100 if I'm going to do this job. Um, there are plenty of resumes from fake folks, phony folks that will pour in once y'all fire me. But if, if I'm going to do this, we're going to keep it 100, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us this time and this space to talk in this way. Help us to be better, do better, to know you better. I pray for the church guys and the church girls struggling to navigate this thing, trying to contort their lives to fit into the ideals of Scripture. Teach us your word in new and fresh ways. Help us to know what it says to us in 2022. I pray for our singles. I, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will provide for them the desires of their heart. Do it for them, God. Do it for them. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Won't you praise God for his word?